This is a special episode of Effing Shakespeare, recorded in collaboration with the 2021 AWP Conference and Book Fair. We're thankful to be the official podcast for AWP for a second year and have invited a gallery of guests that you don't want to miss out on. As always, please subscribe, rate, and review so we can continue to bring you interviews of amazing writers sharing about their amazing work. Enjoy. I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Martin-Williams. And this is Effing Shakespeare. By writers. For writers. We're thrilled to talk to Lily Danziger. Her new memoir, Negative Space, which I nearly devoured in one sitting, comes out May 2021 with Santa Fe Writers Project. She's the editor of the essay collection, Burn It Down, Women Writing About Anger, and a contributing editor at Catapult. Among other fantastic things with which she's involved, she founded and co-hosts a reading series slash newsletter, which you all should subscribe to called Memoir Monday. We're so happy to have you. Welcome, Lily. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. I wanted to get us started today by talking for a second about the progress from your first book, which was a book of 22 essays from women writers who are writing about anger. Did the experience of working on that book and collecting those essays and obviously spending time thinking about women writing candidly about their experiences with anger, how did it shape and contribute to the ideas that you talk about in Negative Space? Yeah, well, because publishing is weird and timelines are unpredictable, um, I was actually pretty much done with Negative Space already when I started working on Burn It Down, uh, even though Burn It Down came out in 2019 and Negative Space is coming out later this year. Um, So I think, you know, maybe if anything, it was kind of the other way around. You know, a Mm -hmm. lot of the process of writing negative space was finding anger that I had that I didn't realize I had and also finding what was underneath the anger that I did know I had and so you know having been through that process myself with the memoir I kind of was was primed to help other writers do that as well in their burn it down essays and a lot of the essays in the anthology ended up being about you know other emotions that are hiding underneath anger Mm -hmm. and also anger that's hiding underneath other emotions. (laughs) Yeah, it's so rarely just the one, right? Especially for women, it doesn't always display that way. Do you mind reading some of Negative Space for us and maybe setting it up a little bit for us? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Let's see, I have a short passage here. This is from early on in the book. I think the only thing we need to know at this point is that father mailed me a letter right before he died and it arrived a few days after his death when I was 12 years old. And so of course that letter became you know, a very significant object in my life. Um, and I referenced that in this section. They say all the cells in your body regenerate every seven years. When I turned 20, my father had been dead for eight. So if that theory is true, no cell in my body had ever been on the planet at the same time as him. I'd changed cell by cell into a person he never knew. I was in college learning new things that I couldn't debate with him or get his opinion on, but I had to decide the value of for myself. I had an apartment in the East Village with a roommate I loved like a sister whom he'd never met. I was bartending, part of my neighborhood community, not as the daughter of a local artist, but as myself. I had a whole life, 
and my father wasn't in it. With every step forward, I was acutely aware that I was moving further and further from the version of me that had known him, or even a version of me that he would recognize. I was entering the world as a fatherless woman after years as a fatherless girl, and I didn't know how to move forward without leaving my father behind. For all of my adolescence, I'd stayed rooted in my grief because that was where I'd felt most connected to him. It was where he had left me, like when I was little and my parents warned that if we ever got separated on the subway, I was to get out at the next stop and wait for them. If I stayed in my grief, my father would know where to find me. But if I just went ahead and enjoyed college and started planning for a career and becoming my own full person in the world, leaving the heaviness of grief behind, I feared then my father would be truly gone, somehow even more than he already was. The only way to stop that from happening, I thought, was to find a new way to grieve for him. I needed my relationship with my father to change and grow, like every parent-child relationship changes when the child becomes an adult even if that just meant my relationship with his absence. I realized then that I'd been saving his notebooks, that subconsciously I'd always thought of them as one more letter from him, like the one that arrived days after he died. I'd been keeping this last little bit of him for a future when I would really need it, and I needed it now. A little bit of him that could be new to me, that I could discover with wonder. A way to bring my relationship with him into the present of my life learning to see him in a new way so that I could mourn him in a new way. That last letter he wrote on the bus was the fatherly advice that I rationed through my adolescence. I stretched it out and applied it to everything, telling myself over and over to stand up and be proud, trying to hear it in his voice. Now I was on another precipice, looking toward adulthood, and I needed a new pearl of wisdom. Just one more, one more letter from him that magically made it across the border of death and I'd be able to step forward into the rest of my life. Mm, so moving, it's such a good cover. I love yeah. the integration of all of your father's art within the book. And I think I love this book for a number of reasons, but one, because it exists as something that can only be a book. Like you really do have to hold this book in your hands and, and the integration of the art with the book was really moving to me and it almost didn't happen that way, right? Can you talk a little bit about your, your journey finding the right publisher who was willing to work with the art as well? Yeah, it was definitely a sticking point, you know, one thing that made it challenging. It was rejected a lot and revised a lot over many, many years. And, you know, and some of the rejections were just because it wasn't right for the publication because I had submitted it too early, whatever. Some were also definitely because a lot of publishers just didn't know what to do with the artwork. And it, it is a logistical challenge, you know, and my current publisher and I were, you know, both pulling our hair out, trying to get the layout right, going back and forth a million times, editing the images to make sure they printed well. And, you know, all of this, it adds a whole other layer of, of difficulty to the already painstaking process of, you know, proofreading and, and right. book. Um, and so I think, you know, a lot of publishers just didn't want to deal with that, which is understandable, but I was willing to wait, you know, there was never an option for me to take the images out. So it's just a matter of finding somebody who was willing to go through that long, difficult and, process. Yeah. <laughs> and thank God for St. Yeah. Santa Fe Writers Project. So yeah. cool. As, as publishers ourselves, the, the thinginess of books is, is still so the artifact of them. 
the relic of them even is still so important to us. And it was amazing to read a book that was like, yes, this is, this needs to be that. And and not ideas and but in things situation. Yeah. Right. We've talked a lot on the show with other memoirists about, you know, some, some people call it the sort of therapy, the therapeutic aspect of writing a memoir and kind of the spectrum of writing this to, as Natalie Goldberg says, you know, write down the bones. So it becomes a process for you as a writer and as a person. But, you know, the other end of that spectrum being a way to connect with readers who may have had similar experiences or, you know, it's the process of coming from you out into the world instead of just the regenerative process for the individual. So I'm wondering, like, which end of the spectrum you fall on as as a person who's written something that's, you know, such a personal narrative, but also, you know, a part of the world. Yeah, I mean, I think I fell pretty much everywhere on that spectrum at various points of the process. Um, I think I had to do a lot of that cathartic mining how I actually feel about things, putting the emotions down on the page stuff in order to get to the story that would actually resonate with other people, you know, and then there was a lot of like figuring out how I feel on the page and and having to take time away from the book to figure out how I felt before I could write the next section and, you know, all of that stuff. And then in revision is where I paired back everything that was, Mm -hmm. you know, just for me (laughs) and Mm -hmm. my own processing and not necessarily relevant to a reader. And some of it was written, am I right, as a part of your graduate thesis? undergraduate yeah undergrad <laughs> yeah so there was probably some green stuff in there that had to get worked out I mean I can't imagine how the drafts changed do you recall anything any one thing that sticks out about what really had to had to change as you move forward I mean yeah everything about it changed <laughs> and it, it took 11 years which you know anybody will change a lot as a person in 11 years but especially when those 11 years contain all of your 20s. You know, so I, I was sure 20 years old when I started this book. I was a completely different person than I am now. And I also, you know, I originally envisioned it as an artist monograph, like a big hardcover coffee table book. Mm-hmm. that was just the story of my father's life and his artwork. Um, and in the first draft, I even, I referred to myself as his daughter, Lily. I was going at it very, you know, fully on the like reportage art historian mode yeah Um, wow Mm -hmm. and thankfully uh wendy walters who was my thesis advisor at the new school it's like what are you doing (laughs) you can't do that (laughs) it's not this is not working put yourself on the page like okay Uh, she was the first of many people to tell me like to nudge me further in the direction of memoir before it finally became this kind of hybrid thing that it is yeah oh wow (laughs) It's so interesting to hear about that process and to find out that it was all of your 20s because I was, well, first of all, I am now a fatherless woman. My dad died two and a half years ago. And this is actually the first memoir that I've been able to read that included a father's death that I didn't feel like was some sort of sticking pins in myself situation. So thank you for that. But I think there's something so trustworthy about your memoir that I haven't found 
and others on any subject. And I think it's because you're so honest about the artifice, not only the toil and the changing and the, you know, the, um, transformations, but the, the artifice involved, which calls to mind your, your father's own art and his mm -hmm. notes on it. When did those connections start being made? And were, were those connections there from the beginning about your father crafting art and the project that you were embarking on? That came out later. It, it wasn't until several iterations into the project that I started to realize that I was kind of doing a version of what he did, you know, and that all of his artwork is autobiographical in a way, even though it's, you know, it's not a direct self-portrait. He uses dogs and rabbits and deer and, you know, all this other imagery, but it all was very personal and, and very directly reflective of, of his own life. And I kind of, I didn't, I didn't realize until I had already done it that I was kind of also doing that and, and kind of creating a continuation of some of his work, but shifting the medium of it. So, so yeah, that kind of, that last external layer of the narrative where I'm kind of looking in at the story that I'm telling while I'm telling it mm -hmm. arrived later. <laughs> that comes through a lot in the funeral scene uh, mm -hmm. and the character of you, you <laughs> managed to talk to members sometimes, not knowing what to say and realizing that it would be manufactured if, if something, if, if you had said something. Yeah, I in a, in a previous draft that was much more heavy-handed. You know, and I was very directly like, and it wasn't until many years later that I was able to say, you know, and like. <laughs> I think that's what's so powerful is that you. I don't feel like you're starting out knowing all the answers, and even though you went through this eleven-year process, you could have started at the eleven years and just, yeah. you know, a little uh, put in a little from from earlier. But it really feels like we as readers are learning along with you. It's incredibly inviting and yeah, just more trustworthy. Well, thank you. That's great to hear because it also made it way more of a pain in the ass to revise. <laughs> 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 Continually revising and adding new layers of what I was figuring out. Like, I'm never going to be done with this thing. Yes, so, worth it. it <laughs> So yeah, for anyone who's tuning in to find out that it's really easy and you can skip all the hard part, that's a different show. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love this scene. We keep saying scene, but I love the moment in the book where you write about the, the weekend workshop you took with Lydia Yukovich. Yes, Lydia Yukovich. Yeah. That we writers have central metaphors. And I wonder if you could talk about it and, and maybe tell anybody who's listening about that sort of realization about your father's central metaphors and then yours. Yeah, that was one, you know, that was one of those moments when I was adding that kind of other layer and I was like, is this too meta if I talk about like a workshop I was in that helped me realize what I wanted to write in this book that I'm writing? Like, is that too, <laughs> you know, it's like maybe too much, but it, it really was so it's like such a key moment in me mm -hmm. making those connections. Mm -hmm. And I, I read Lydia Yukovich's memoir, The Chronology of Water, and I just loved it so much. And it blew my mind that I, I immediately started Googling her to see if she taught workshops and learned that she actually has this great writing center in Portland called Corporal Writing. So I 
flew there to take this workshop and she was talking about this kind of theory she has, I guess, um, about, sorry about that siren in the background, um, <laughs> calling in from New York City. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, just that, you know, that writers have these core metaphors that we can return to. And, and she was talking about it in terms of, you know, writers feeling like they have already told their stories, you know, and, and feeling like they've run out of new things to say. And she was saying, you know, these, these central experiences and central metaphors of your life, you can come back to forever and ever and ever and keep mining them for new material. And, and then we, you know, and then she gives a prompt to write our own metaphors. And I kind of was stuck and the you know the metaphors that I could think of in the terms that she had been using were all imagery of my father's work and I, I was kind of having this little existential crisis sitting there at, in this writing workshop like do I not have any of my own metaphors <laughs> am I only using my father's have I like let his work totally take over my creative life I meanwhile mean, everyone is out there scribbling their own I was just yeah. like oh my god like yeah freaking <laughs> out having this like panic moment about my identity as a creative person and then realized while sitting there that like no that's actually kind of the point is that you know it's that I've now spent enough time with his metaphors that, that they're now mine also and and I am allowed to engage with them and bring them further on my own which unlocked a lot because I had been afraid to assign meaning to any of his work externally you know I, I didn't want to speak for him I didn't want to say that something meant something unless I had him writing in a notebook that it means this you know and and but that kind of finally gave me permission to do some interpreting of my own and and add my own layer to his work while talking about it rather than only you know viewing it as a lens mm -hmm. it's amazing I love that moment. I'd love to give you a second to talk about Memoir Monday, if you yes. don't mind, and that we really love collaborations here at Wednesday Literary. We talk about them all the time, and it seems that writers always have communities that they're involved in, and, and so we love to hear about those like exchanges. Yeah, could you talk about that with, I guess, Catapult and Gut? Narratively and Granta, who am I missing? And Guernica and the Rumpus and Literary. Oh. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Six partner publications. Yeah, so it started out as a newsletter um, and I started it when I was the memoir editor at Narratively. We had been talking about starting a new newsletter for just the memoir section. And I was thinking, you know, I wouldn't subscribe to that personally just because there are so many newsletters. I don't want multiple newsletters from individual publications. It's just too much, you know? So mm -hmm. I was thinking, what would make me want to subscribe to that newsletter? And decided to kind of go bigger and try and make it like a, a destination for memoir writing online in general, rather than just at one publication. And so I reached out to editors at, you know, places that publish personal essays that I love the most, the most often, you know, and, and just asked like if they would want to collaborate on this newsletter and send me pieces every week to include. And I didn't know what the reception was going to be, but everybody was excited about it. I was like, yeah, sure. That sounds great. It's like, all you have to do is share the link on social media <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and it'll get more eyeballs on your stuff. Um, and then it kind of evolved. And I was like, what if it was a reading series too? And it was another thing where I was like, I don't know if people are going to be into that, but then people were. Uh, and so now it's a newsletter and a reading series. And it's been really great. It's kind of just like my excuse to reach out to memoirists that I like and <laughs> invite them to read and get to talk to them. And uh, yeah, it's been really fun. 
It sounds kind of like our podcast. Yeah. It does. <laughs> <laughs> That's really has great. It, has it changed since last year that much? How has it changed? Yeah, I mean, it's been all over Zoom, mm-hmm. since, you know, for the pandemic, which at first I was unsure about you know usually the readings are at powerhouse arena in brooklyn and it's really nice to actually have some face time you know that was part of the impetus for it originally was that we all are behind our screens all the time and wouldn't it be nice to go hang out in person and drink some like cheap wine out of plastic cups and you know do that whole thing um so you know the zoom version is different but it's also been cool because it means that i'm no longer restricted to writers who live in new york or are passing through you know, there's no funding of any kind for it. So I'm not in a position to like pay for people to fly to New York and stay in a hotel. <laughs> that would all be <laughs> coming out of my pocket and that's not something I can afford. So being able to have writers come from everywhere and being able to have, you know, people tune in to listen from everywhere has been really cool. So yeah, it's, it's working fine. Uh, I'm still looking forward to when we can go back to doing it in person or at least maybe some in person and some Zoom. I don't really know how that's going to work, but... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm yeah I think we're all ready yeah <laughs> some governors more than others yeah anyway what's next for you Lily what's on the docket well I have a bunch of stuff planned for the next couple months you know I'm just I'm in full like book promo mode trying not to you know annoy the hell out of myself and everybody who knows me by just like being on social media constantly promoting stuff but that's you know that's the game you just have to bite the bullet and do it um and I also am working on a book proposal that I'm hoping to send out later this year so we'll see yeah yeah like having something else to generate is is helping me kind of balance out the feeling like the publicity aspect has taken over my life Mm -hmm. you know get to still feel like I'm creating something and not just becoming a salesperson talking my wares (laughs) in the corner yeah (laughs) what has been kind of giving you hope this last year is to close things up (laughs) (laughs) that's a short list Lily Well, she's not a helpful person. She's a writer. You know, yeah, I think uh, it's less, you know, I, uh, not particularly hopeful. I'm more just like, I know this has to end eventually, and I just am surviving it in the meantime. And I'm very good at compartmentalizing and, you know, working through upheaval. And I, done it in my life before and I'm doing it now and I've managed to just still be working and writing and talking to my friends and cooking food and watching good tv and just waiting until I can see people in person again (laughs) that's a good list that is good yeah well it was really great to get to meet you thank you so much for your time thank you so much for having me and your book thank you all right thank you Lily bye-bye Effing Shakespeare is a production of Bloomsday Literary in association with Houston Creative Space, hosted by Kate Martin-Williams and Jessica Cole, and produced by me, Fulu. Our trusty and hardworking intern is Sanviti Sedan. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever podcasts are found.